Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Uh, today we have some uh, some warfighters from around the uh, Air Force and in a bunch of different places working on some cool stuff. Uh, for admin for Kodiak Shack, donations are always open, so uh, the link will be in the show notes. Uh, feel free to donate uh, to help us uh, keep producing the podcast. Uh, and then like, share, subscribe. Uh, tell people about the podcast if you like it, and then tell us about the podcast, what you like or don't like, at info at KodiakShack.com, or check out the web- website, KodiakShack.com. Showtime and uh, Michael, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Showtime, tell us about yourself. It's not a trap. <laughs> All right. Hey, Vader. Thanks for having me today. Uh, so I'm uh, active duty Air Force uh, fighter pilot by trade. Originally Strike Eagles, now at 35s. Uh, I've got a unique opportunity right now to sit out here in a fellowship at Stanford University in the Gordian Knott Center for National Security Innovation. Nice. And then, uh, and then B, so my, everybody, Michael goes by B. So, uh, B, tell us about yourself. Hey, Vader. Thanks so much for having us on the show. And yep, I go by B, uh, simply put, there's too many mics in the world. I think in my last office, there were four mics within like three offices. So yep, go by B. Um, so similar to Showtime, I had the opportunity to participate in a fellowship this year. I'm doing the strategic policy fellowship with an IDE spot, uh, here in the national capital region. And for my last uh, six months of that one-year assignment, I'm actually out here at Rand Corporation, so across the street from the Pentagon, uh, within the Pentagon City Mall, uh, getting to basically be around a lot of smart people working on some pretty uh, wicked problems. Yeah, that's awesome. So the uh, experience is how did you end up getting to these opportunities. So obviously the Rand uh, setup is part of your IDE. Anybody who doesn't know what IDE is, it's your major prior to lieutenant colonel rank uh, school that you have to do. Uh, most slackers like myself do it in correspondence. Uh, and then uh, some of the fast burners end up uh, making it to some pretty cool setups. So B, how did, how did you end up getting out there? And then how did your career prior kind of get you ready for it? Yeah. So to be clear, those fast burners, they're, they're folks like Showtime. Um, I, I prescribe, I guess, the, 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 fake, it, the fake it till you make it, um, but it's working so far. Love it. Um, but no, I mean, just, just, uh, every day doing your job, right. Whatever your job is, uh, at whatever point uh, in your career, I think is what at least set myself up. And I bet that, uh, prescribes to showtime as well, but we'll let him share his thoughts. Um, and then, so for me, uh, so I'm, I'm a munitions officer by trade. It's a pretty small community within the air force. It's not very large, uh, but we take care of all the conventional nuclear and ICBM, uh, weapon systems within the Air Force. So pretty broad range when you think about it. Uh, And actually a lot of current topics going on today, uh, certainly from a conventional munitions perspective, but as the the DOD kind of recapitalizes uh, the nuclear triad, uh, there's a lot of those conversations. So all that said, um, in terms of how my career has set me up to to be here in this uh, fellowship opportunity, again, serving all those broad uh, range of missions uh, has at least kept me educated to where I come in here. And again, I'm around some pretty intelligent folks. I don't know exactly all the things that they're saying, but I'm like, oh no, I've, I've heard of this. I know this is important. So again, just uh, coming in every day, uh, doing my job to the best of my ability, right? Abiding by those core values, I think is has what set me up. Nice. Well, one question I, I kind of have as a, uh, as a munitions officer. So we all know that each, I, I believe, maybe I'm incorrect, but uh, has each munition has kind of like a shelf life if you will. And then after a while, they kind of age out. And then how does that work? And how does our acquisitions look in the process of, hey, we have old heat seeking missiles, we have old radar guided missiles, we may have more old ICBMs or nukes, like, how do we 
get rid of the old and then acquire the new? Yeah, so certainly um, I'll put the nuclear weapons aside. Those are a little bit of a different animal, but certainly on a conventional uh, system, right? So in terms of what's in stockpile now, right? It all starts with those airmen that are out there doing uh, what we kind of often refer to as stockpile surveillance. And they're out there every day uh, doing what we ask for them to do, keeping eyes on, they've got inspections guided by tech data, uh, keeping a look on those things. And a, actually a fair amount of, uh, you know, the munitions of the 500 or the 2000 pound bomb bodies, those are quite old, right? But they've got inspection to, criteria to keep up uh, and, and make sure that they're serviceable. And then as, as you know, they go up, they come down, or as they're aging uh, in whatever structure they're in, if they don't meet that criteria, right, uh, we've got a, a pretty robust inspection criterion inspection shop. Uh, and if it's deemed unserviceable, just like you might be from at least casually familiar with uh, aircraft parts, right, they'll be red X'd and they'll be sent, sent off uh, through different logistics supply chains, and they'll be either recapitalized or just uh, demilitarized, depending on it. As for the nuclear, uh, it's very similar, right? But the uh, the U.S. government does not make nuclear weapons anymore. That's kind of a, a thing. We don't make them, um, but we uh, we monitor and we keep the, the that uh, stockpile up to date. But it, it's really the same thing, right? A dedicated set of of young airmen out there abiding by uh, technical pol or technical procedures, inspecting and maintaining those weapon systems. The main difference, though on the nuclear side, when something kind of meets a reject uh, condition, instead of those going off to say like, you know, on the munition side, a lot of things will go back to, to Salt Lake City, uh, specifically Hill Air Force Base. On the nuclear side, that goes all back to the Department of Energy. And so that's kind of the main wrinkle, right? Is that those weapons themselves technically are produced and owned uh, in their entirety by the Department of Energy. So. And that's one aspect of being a part of the nuclear community that's pretty cool is seeing uh, where both the DOD and the DOE come together for the nuclear mission. Yeah, which uh, I feel like one um, federal organization is tough to deal with, now two working together. <laughs> you are correct. Yeah, uh, one thing that I do appreciate, which, uh, you know, and, and for people who don't understand, obviously, like B said, like, hey, uh, a Mark 82, which is a 500 pound bomb body, it's steel wrapped around an explosive and not much else until you kind of put that all together and either snap slap like a guidance kit on yeah. the front or back. Um, but you have, we have some really complex weapons now that have software and hardware and all of those sure. things have to be checked as you kind of go through. So it's, it's not as much as like, yep, bomb still looks like a bomb. Next one. Yep, you know? Absolutely. And you bring that up and that's a great point. And I've, I've got a couple of different experiences. I won't go into all the details, but when you're doing those checks, right, on, on some of those different softwares, uh, what it'll come down is to, do we have clean, reliable power to, to run the different bit checks, you know, the built-in tests uh, to make sure that it's ready to go before we build that bomb, before we load it up on that airplane. And so there we were doing a real-world generation, um, you know, at location X that I won't go into, but it all came down to, do we have clean, you know, reliable 400 hertz of power uh, because this generator is just not, it's just not producing it. So yes, you are correct. They're very high end weapon systems. Um, there are some, there are certain aspects of them that storage wise, they have strict conditions. And then even then just to do the test, you've got to have a lot of variables go your way to get a mission ready. Yeah. And, and my understanding be back me up at Showtime. Have you been to a WESA? I have, yes. So a WESUP, for everybody who doesn't know, is where you get to go out to uh, to Florida or another location, and you get to rip some bombs, maybe rip some missiles. And my understanding is those are kind of like on their way out. They're not quite too old yet, but rather than have an EOD blowing up, blow them up, they just let, you know, fighter guys go out and rip some missiles and high-five after, you know? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, uh, so Showtime, how did flying the strike and then the transition to the 35 kind of prep you to go out to the uh, Gordian Knot organization? Yeah, you know, I think uh, I'd probably echo a lot of what B said. Um, and I think for me specifically, a little bit of it is being at the right place at the right time. So this fellowship that I'm in right now, it's uh, I'm the first one to get it, which means it was just created, right? And just like any other program, if you want something new, you got to get rid of something else, right? So <laughs> I think what they did was they took a fellowship that was going to house a fighter pilot in it, right? They cut that one, created this one. So they're like, all right, we need a fighter pilot uh, that's going to do this ID thing to go out here to Stanford. So, you know, I think uh, that was definitely a little bit of the help that got me out here. But, 
you know, like B said, everything else, you know, just like trying to be successful at everything I've done up to this point uh, has really helped me get out here. Um, nice. So then uh, the Gordian Knot Institute at Stanford, uh, can you can you kind of talk about what they just generally work on and how the DOD and you yourself are kind of integrating with them to work on our problems? Yeah, for sure. So the Gordian Knot Center, uh, it's, you know, I think it's about almost two years old now. And it was created by the same uh, small group of people that started the Hacking for Defense class out here at Stanford. So Hacking for Defense uh, takes students from these universities. It's now scaled to, I think, over 60 universities uh, across multiple countries. Uh, but takes these students and what they call like these intractable uh, problems or challenges affecting national security, you know, whether it's for the military, uh, inside of the government, but then uh, identifying a problem using this methodology created by one of the co-founders, uh, Steve Blank and his clean methodology to try to like really iterate on this problem over this short period of time, uh, kind of high intensity to, you know, solve the problems or uh, either get to a point where they can publish uh, some kind of document on it or create a solution or some of these people go off and actually create companies uh, to solve problems. So that's kind of where it started out. Uh, they said, okay, if we can do this with this class, Let's take it a step further, uh, creating this Gordian Knot Center, uh, which is now like the, a nexus between uh, academia at Stanford, the government, you know, and that includes all uh, different parts of the government, where it's the state, Department of Defense, uh, and then industry as well, right? Sitting in the center of Silicon Valley down here. Uh, it's a great place to convene uh, all kinds of people from all those locations to really get minds together uh, so everybody can talk and collaborate and you know, try to move the ball down the field. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, and I think that's what, you know, the government's been trying to leverage the private sector for so long now and, you know, helping them understand our problems so they can then help either provide solutions directly or indirectly to the government is, it just makes sense. So I'm, I'm glad that that's happening. What are some of the, uh, what are some of the things that you've worked on in your time at the Gordian Knot Center? Yeah, for sure. So I started out, right, I get to take uh, various courses out here at Stanford, you know, uh, whether it's related to technology, innovation, great power competition, you know, to international policy classes or uh, classes in a business school, you know, anything that's applicable. So that's pretty, um, a pretty cool opportunity. And I'm also able to conduct uh, independent research. So I started out researching the Air Force's innovation ecosystem. And then through uh, some other things I'm studying at the uh, Graduate School of Business, right, innovation within large successful organizations, uh, trying to compare the two of those and see if the Air Force actually applies uh, best practices from industry uh, throughout its many, many uh, innovation, you know, directorates or offices, whatever they are. Uh, so that's kind of where I started out, you know, doing some research uh, and then I've shifted to work on a couple of projects most notably the one where I met uh, B here working on this uh, project for the chief of staff. Yeah. And if I, if I would guess whether the air force uses best practices, I would guess <laughs> no. Is that uh, or would you say they do? All right. Yeah. I'll give you the standard answer, right? It depends. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Uh, yeah. yeah <laughs> there no, it is. Dude, the, the air force does some really great things in the innovation realm. Right. Um, but I think the, the place where it can really improve is trying to spread that across all of the different areas, right? So there's some organizations that do some things really well, you know, in, uh, in line with those best practices, but not everybody does. Uh, I think one of the biggest issues, like you talked about, right, is trying to get the right people talking to the other right people, whether through networks or some kind of system uh, to really make it more efficient. Yeah. And how, uh, well, we'll, we'll, move over to uh, B real quick, but we'll come back showtime. So B over at Rand. Right. So uh, I know Rand's been doing a lot of stuff. I, I've, I have referred, maybe other people refer to it and I now refer to it as a think tank, okay. which may be, I hope that's not like a derogatory term for, uh, for smart people. Yeah. But either way, uh, the one I know about is when uh, the air force was like, how much do you need, do we need to pay fighter pilots or pilots in general and a bonus to make, to increase retention. And I think Rand said something like 57,000 and the air force was like, best I can do is 25 or whatever they did. Oh, okay. And, uh, <laughs> 
But no, uh, so what does is, what is RAND kind of do generally? And then more specifically, like, what are you working on there? Okay, absolutely. So I'll do my best to start uh, at the beginning, but RAND's got a long storied history. I know um, it certainly goes back to the 1940s in terms of doing uh, research work for the DOD in particular. Um, so I guess I should have started off. So RAND is a FFRDC, and the acronym escapes me, but it's a federally funded research maybe development center, but it's a, it's a research center. Uh, and it is, a, it is, a, you buy that for a dollar. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and so it's actually a little bit of a misnomer, uh, referring to it as a think tank because as a, as a FFRDC, there is, um, different set of requirements. So Congress actually, uh, puts money forward, uh, for different government organizations, specifically military organizations to have contracts with FFRDCs. Whereas think tanks, right, they're out there, they've got their different uh, sources of revenue that just, they do that. They pay them to think and write and we, and we read all the articles, right? Whereas an FFRDC, right, that's government money going to a, a, an organization such as RAND. And they're doing similar things, right, in terms of thinking big thoughts and doing some research and analysis. But as an FFRDC, right, they have uh, certain access to information, right? So there's, there's a lot of sharing of access that they do go up to some of the highest levels of classification because they really are working um, some of the hardest problems. I mean, you gotta think as, as a military member, right? It's not too often do we allow, whether officer or enlisted, hey, you know, just have some time, you know, as much time as you need to just think about problems, right? And think about solutions, yeah. right? That's just not, it's not really, um, I don't know if I'd say our strength, but we just don't have a habit of, of allowing folks to do that. Um, and yeah. so, you know, there's places like RAND, um, that the Air Force or the, you know different uh, branches of the military will give uh, give Rand you know pay Rand, and they have access to um, a lot of different lot of different skills, a lot of different knowledge on different topics, and they'll and they'll take a look at these hard problems, right? Because they've got uh, a deep bench of folks that have been doing that, and they'll provide either recommendations or observations for improvement. Um, so that's kind of Rand as a whole in terms of kind of what I've been doing. Um, once you get here, they, they tell you guys, do not, do not, uh, overcommit, right? Start small, only commit to a couple of different projects. Um, and they, they told us it's going to be hard. You're going to want to do it all. Um, because they give you this long list of here's these research programs and you're like, oh, that sounds cool. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. And you go down the list and then very soon you find out like, oh my gosh, I've overcommitted. How did this happen? So I've had to scale back a little bit. Um, so I've, I'm focused on three main projects first, um, it's a project uh, called Plan Blue. They're part of, um, it's an annual war game that the Air Force will have uh, that ask, they ask Rand to conduct an, a war game. So that's actually going on this week. It's pretty cool. Um, I won't go too far into the scenario that we're playing out, uh, but would you be surprised it's in the Pacific? Um, well, crazy. Yeah, and so, you know, as, a, as, a, as an FGO, specifically as an 04, you know, munitions maintainer, we don't get to participate in war games too often at this point in my career. So it's really, it's really interesting to be part of the, team developing the game and then now we're in game execution so the air force uh actually people from across the services are coming in to play the game so that's a lot of fun um if you're into that sort of thing which i am i guess um and then the second the second project um is a modeling and simulation team uh that's doing a lot of the work for operational imperative five so resilient basing and so as, as the Air Force looks out across, you know, its annual budget and they're trying to make decisions of how much money should we invest in this, you know, base defense capability and how do we know we're going to get our return on investment? Well, because there's, there's groups like here at RAM, but other places as well that have these modeling and SIM capabilities and say like, hey, if you invest, you know, this much money in this system, you'll be able to generate X amount more sorties. And you got to think that's pretty, that's pretty good advice or at least good data to go off of. Um, so I've been part of that. And then kind of the most interesting part, um, there's a Arctic research office. Uh, so actually as part of my payback uh, or utilization tour, excuse me, my, my utilization tour from my fellowship, I'll go over and uh, work at OSD policy in their, their newly established Arctic office, uh, which is new for me. I don't, you know, um, Arctic's a new frontier for me as with many. Um, and so I've spent a lot of my time here at RAND just trying to get smart on the Arctic and all the different uh, environmental and security issues that uh, our nation and its allies and partners face. So kind of long answer there, um, but it's been a lot of fun. 
Yeah. Well, and one of my first questions, maybe Showtime kind of thinks the same way with uh, just the flying and because we always war game. Like that's our job is just to like come up with a the scenario yeah. and then try to win. Yeah. And if you lose, you're like, well, the scenario was rigged. It wasn't me. <laughs> but the, uh, True. So how do you, when you're building those war games and you're trying to integrate all these things, whether it's at an unclassified level or highly classified, like how are you managing your desired learning objectives? Like how do you say like how are we testing these things or these skill sets or these abilities of our organization? Right. And so so as a munitions officer, I've been – heavily involved on kind of the logistics and the sustainment aspect of the war game. Um, But all the different kind of sub communities within the war game, we always have to go back to what is the purpose of the game? Because we can go, you can go several steps down and and have these different discussions about these different aspects of, well, we need to take this into consideration. And you do a lot of what if scenarios. And then you always just have to remind yourself, like, what is the intent of the game? So you've always got to be able to come back and recage yourself. Because uh, if not, I mean, I mean, and that's kind of one of the fundamental aspects of warfare, right? It's unpredictable. It's chaotic. Um, and so in a war game, you can't, can't just let it all go because you don't really know um, how it's going to end up. So there are desired learning objectives, right, that the, that the, the in this case, that the Air Force um, wants to see played. And so we always have to come back to that and just say, like, okay, this is the desired learning objective. This is what the, they refer to it as the sponsor so in this case for the game, it's A5. So A5, this is the desired learning objective. Let's come back to that and stay caged on it. Because if not, we could go, especially as logisticians, we can go in so many different directions uh, in terms of uh, gaming out different scenarios. Yeah, well, I would say just thinking about that kind of scenario in, in general terms, like waging war uh, in a logistics uh, manner, that that's probably one of the, most important parts of the fight is weapons and fuel and being able to provide that to aircraft and people wherever they need it. I have to say, Vader, I'm impressed, man. You, you hit them there. Uh, munitions and fuel. Those are, those are certainly the two, uh, the two sources of classes of supply that are getting a lot of attention and rightfully so when we talk about, um, Indo-PACOM and agile combat employment. So, uh, yep, those are, those are two, but, but, you know, once you're done talking about munitions and fuel, uh, very quickly we talk. We start talking with class eight supply, right? So medical, medical supply, medical logistics um, is a, is a big part that's not getting um, as much as the attention as maybe as it should. So there's there's a lot in there that that we talk about. But again, to to your original point, you've always got to come back to, okay, what's what's the point of the game? What's the, what are the desired learning objectives? Because if not. Um, it's not that it would become uh, an inefficient or ineffective game, but it would just go on and on and on um, because there's so much, especially from a logistics and sustainment aspect. Well, and I think one of the things in Showtime, you know, I'd, I'd love to get your input on, you know, we, you can, you can do that thing where we'll, we'll ask questions and we'll say why, and we try the five whys and kind of get to boil something down to its most basic form. Uh, but you can also go the other way where you let things devolve and just kind of like, you know, uh, like fission out into nothingness and you're like an hour and a half into a a conversation. You're like, what, how did, how did we even get here? You know? (laughs) So uh, what would you say Showtime is obviously when you go to these schools, I assume it's not like a standard fighter squadron where it's just a bunch of fighter pilots with the same experiences talking about why they disagree on, they should have, you know, bonsai versus short skate. Like, are you getting a lot of opportunities to integrate, integrate with people who are from different career fields, different experiences, and then you're kind of being able to compare, contrast, and then come together for these ideas and solutions? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why we get sent out to these fellowships, right? Is to kind of like open up our eyes uh, and our minds to what's actually out there besides, you know, our narrow scope of what we've been doing for the past, you know, 10, 15 years, whatever it is. So, but as we go in and like talk to these different people, you know, whether it's like sitting in a class with them, round table sessions, one-on-one meetings, um, a lot of it, at least in the academia world, right, is usually based on somebody's research. And everybody's research is kind of caged by a single question, you know, like, hey, if I'm going to study, you know, whatever topic it is, I'll ask, why is this um, one specific thing the case in the subject area? And then they kind of dive deep on that, right? So they're able to have a discussion with that, you know, being a subject matter expert on that area. But 
there's, you know, the disciplines kind of run wide so everybody can have conversations and, you know, interact with the kind of their, their own specific background knowledge. And how do you, how do you ask, this is maybe a odd question, but how do you ask smart questions? You know, so you walk in and there's a, there's an expert or someone who's highly experienced in a field and then you, you have these conversations and then you, you, you want to provide input, but how do you ask those questions that kind of break things down farther? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a great question, right? And um, I found myself wanting to figure out, you know, like, what's, what can I ask that's going to provide me the most benefit, you know, but also advance the conversation. Um, some of that is, you know, a little bit of study ahead of time on the subject area, you know, rather whatever, you know, research there is to be done or whether it's reading a book or article or something like that. So kind of getting familiar with the subject area, I think, but then I also like to tie it back to my own expertise, right? So being in the Air Force, you know, flying jets and kind of how the Air Force is operating around the world. How can I tie in my experiences to, you know, whatever, whatever this person's specialty is as well. Having spent time in the tactical arena and, and, you know, doing Strike Eagle stuff and doing 35 stuff, did that prepare you pretty well to, to kind of the uptake of information and, and trying to wrap your mind around these problem sets? Uh, yeah, I think so. Right. So I think the kind of the way I've thought about problems in the past, you know, just kind of, uh, collecting information as I go through an event, right? Like as you're flying a sortie and you're kind of like putting all this stuff into your mind and like putting in little buckets or bins so that you can remember it later for the debrief, right? I think being able to do that as I go through, you know, whether through discussions uh, has been beneficial right there. And then my experiences, right? Having flown, you know, in the U.S. or uh, in whatever other part of the world, a lot of like air force operations have had impacts, you know, to uh, certain, you know, p um, political out, not political outcomes, I should say, but I've had certain uh, uh, interactions with policy in Afghanistan or, you know, Homeland defense or whatever it may be. So it's easy to, I guess, tie in the military aspect to the people that are creating policy. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah. Well, and the, uh, B, are you, are you able to sit down with either higher like civilian positions or, uh, military leader, general officer, stuff like that, and be able to integrate and kind of have the conversations and get that broader exposure to provide the information that you're gathering up to the next level, like an A5 or something? I, certainly. Um, over here, let me start, I'll start kind of over here at Rand. Um, I, I cannot tell you how, uh, how impressed I have been with some of these folks in terms of their knowledge and understanding of the Air Force. Uh, pretty, you know, pretty early on, when I, so I joined uh, the RAND team in January, and I, I was told, hey, you know, tomorrow there's going to be a, a briefing. They're going to call it Air Force 101. You should attend. And I remember th uh, there's another fellow we were joining together, and we kind of looked at each other we're like, really, they're going to? teach us something about the Air Force. Like, that's cool. All right, yeah, we'll, we'll drop in and see, what, see what's up. Oh, my gosh, they, they blew us away. Uh, and I think I took way, way more notes, uh, probably than I should have. I should have probably noted some more things. Um, so certainly there's a, there's a lot of folks around here that are extremely uh, knowledgeable, and so the ability to interact with them and learn with them. And then, right, so we're not too far from the Pentagon. Um, it's a pretty short walk. So whenever I find myself over there and have the opportunity to engage with them, with uh, senior leaders of across the services. Um, yeah, it's been um, in some cases, and I think kind of you were hitting on a little bit with Showtime, uh, maybe a little bit of an intimidating atmosphere of somebody, uh, you know, in the military, right? We, we wear our rank and in some regard, in certain regards, our, our authority and it's just there in your face and you can see it and, and it can be intimidating. Uh, but, say, but similar to what Showtime said, you know, just remind yourself that I've, I've had the experiences, I'm qualified to be here. If, if I wasn't qualified to be here, I wouldn't be here. Um, 
and then and then right and then in some regards you just got to go for it you just got to engage that conversation and and if you uh if you make a mistake you know what just live and learn uh, but I, I would say for the large part um my career my experiences have prepared me um to talk with with senior leaders from across the joint force both military and civilian nice the uh so we'll, we'll, oh go ahead so i was gonna say that uh, brings up a good point you know like in these conversations too you know we're the subject matter experts on the air force so whenever somebody from the other side is talking to us right it's like learning is going on on both sides of the conversation oh. usually and so uh, i think that's uh, at least beneficial for me to think about when I think there's a nature of just being humble, you know, you can be an expert in your craft, but the moment you step outside of that kind of wheelhouse, you need to, you need to humble yourself yeah. and say like, Hey, I'm not an expert. I need to ask more yeah. questions. You know, the classic, like you have one mouth and two ears because yeah. you should listen twice as much as you speak, which I say that as having a podcast. So I apologize. No, I, I, I was way too much. I was thinking the same thing as you were asking, <laughs> you were asking Showtime, well, how do you interact with these people and how do you how do you uh, think of good questions or ask good questions? My, if you were to ask me that answer, I would say I would start with at least three minutes of listening. Just listen to whatever they have to say for like three minutes, um, because yeah. because uh, I don't know if I'd say they automatically know more than you, but they probably know more than you uh, than you expect. Uh, but you certainly you have a you have a role to play in that conversation or in that engagement. They can learn from you. But you just same thing. You've got two ears for a reason. Listen first. Yeah. One, one of my buddies told me uh, a long time ago, uh, it, it's probably a fictional story, but uh, it was uh, apparently it was like a GM or Ford or some some U.S. automaker goes to Japan to to learn from them about uh, like vehicle production. And uh, but they show up and they're they're not humble. They're not you know, they just kind of like, hey, we're U.S. auto production. And again, I'm not I'm not linking this to any actual company. This is more of like a parable. Um but by the end of the day, the Japanese real realize that they're not prepared to listen. They're not actually trying to get information, like be like a crosstalk kind of thing. They're just like, hey, you should listen to us because we're U.S. automakers. And so the, the Japanese bring out uh, tea and the cups are already filled to the brim. And then they walk around and then they pour them more tea and the tea spills over the top. And they said, this is like, this is how you've showed up. Like you've shown up with your cups already full not prepared to take any more in. And, uh, and I think that's a great way to approach things. It's like, Hey, I am, I am an empty, uh, teacup, if you will, if, uh, maybe more masculine, like a coffee mug, you know, but, uh, but yeah, like ready to like gain information and glean information from others who are smarter in areas where I am not. So on that note, we'll talk about that logistics challenge in say like an Indo-PACOM area. What would you say are some of the biggest constraints and challenges when you're talking about specifically maybe fuel and weapons, uh, getting them around into locations where they can be utilized. Yeah, certainly. And if you don't mind, I'll take it, maybe, um, I'll dial it up a notch in terms of the operational tempo, right? We talk about agile combat employment, which is at the forefront of all of our minds, uh, within today's air force, you know, for at least me, it, it comes with what, what do I need? Where is it? Who owns it? Can I have it? Who can get it to me, right? And those are just some of the five questions. And we've got to be able to work through that and make those decisions and have the authorities to make those sort of decisions in a time and a manner um, that we haven't been forced to operate in a really long time, uh, at least within my within my time. So again, who, what is it? Who owns it? Can I have it? Uh, you know, who can and who can get it to me and where or when? Um, and so when I think logistics or sustainment in an Indo-PACOM, um, specifically in an agile combat employment environment, it, it has to be that, right? It, it, and it has to be decisions at speed across a wide network that we just haven't, we haven't been forced to operate or to think like that. And so having the ability to reach out and find that information, you know, I, I tell this one, and again, it's just an analogy, right? But if I'm, if I'm leading a, a maintenance unit in Australia, Right. How am I to know? And, and right. And showtime's there because we're flying F-35s. How am I to know that the widget that I need for the F-35 is like 10 miles down the road at the Australian Air Force Base? I don't, I don't know that because I don't have access to that information. Right. And yeah. then and then don't forget, you know, don't forget I'm a munitions guy. So if I'm sitting there and showtime's F-35, right, it needs a couple of uh, let's, let's just call them bombs. Right. How am I to know that the bomb body 
that I need, right? It's on, you know, some Navy vessel that's like 100, 200, however many meters out to shore. How am I supposed to know that? And so having information, authority, policies, processes, and systems to share that information across the joint force, um, that's where my mind goes when I think agile combat employment and logistics and sustainment out there. Uh, it, it starts with the information, uh, information dominance, you know, decision advantage. There's a lot of words that are going around kind of the service right now, but, but they're going around for good reason because it's, it's going to be a hard problem uh, that we've got to spend a lot of time thinking about. When, so you're saying, because I think of, and maybe Showtime's in the same boat, I think of the physical nature of actually moving these things there. But even before we get to that point, before the movement part, it's just finding them, nowhere, knowing where to find them and knowing how to access them is the, is the first bridge to cross before you even worry about getting things to the right place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, and I don't want to go on too much of a rant here, but so many of our IT systems even within our own service are just siloed, right? And so when I was at Luke Air Force Base, right, I knew I knew everything that was at, from a munition standpoint, I knew everything that was here, right? And same thing when I was over in the, in the 62nd AMU, right? Like I knew everything that was in my unit and that I owned. I didn't know, but I didn't know, I had no visibility what was, you know, just a couple hundred yards down the ramp in the other AMU. Now I would find out at the briefing, right? When we'd show up at the, you know, the morning at nine o'clock, to brief the 06 and I would see all the parts that, that they needed and and I, and I knew what I had. So there would be some crosstalk, but just wholesale access to information. Uh, no, that, that does not, that did not exist. And I don't suspect that it does exist in, uh, at this time. Yeah. And Showtime, what do you think? Like, how, how are we going to tackle that? Like, how are we going to tackle that problem of one information and then moving stuff to where we actually need it? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, B was talking about like the different IT systems we have. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of people have been trying to do this and our systems have worked for the past, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, right? And at times where maybe those systems are uh, pushed to their limits, we've got people that are, right, people, airmen are just getting the job done, right? They're like, you have to get this done and they just find a way to make it happen. So I think to a certain extent, you know, we've seen that that does happen. Um, but we really, I think there's a need uh, to reform that, right? We've got to, we've got to identify the root cause of the issues and why these are going to be issues, especially like in an ACE environment, right? Because stretching it from, you know, CONUS to uh, the far stretches of the Pacific, that's difficult in and of itself, you know, but if you add in uh, additional layers of complexity, that makes it so much harder. When I think, you know, we look back and we say, oh, man, this is such a difficult problem set. How can we ever solve it? And then you look back at World War II and you think we waged war on two separate fronts, you know, in, in Europe and in the Pacific and GPS didn't exist. And, you know, and, and granted, like technology has has come with uh, solutions, but it's also created more problems where now we need like uh, crypto to to make our weapons work rather than just you being able to drop a dumb bomb. So how, how are we going to kind of tackle that? Not only that, that distance issue, uh, but getting stuff one to where we want it, but two, managing it. And, you know, cause it's going to end up somewhere and then it's going to be like, Hey, it needs to go over here now. And, uh, you know, I feel like we're going to be hopping around a lot. Is that a, is that a consideration? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think, um, whether if it's you know, like logistics and we've talked about uh, moving weapons around, you know, or personnel or supplies, right? I think this applies to like air refueling as well. Um, we've got tankers that are sitting at base X and we need them to be at this uh, location in the sky at a certain time to refuel. And so um, I think that's going to be an issue. And the way we need to do that, right? There's a lot of people uh, looking at ACE and how this is going to work. Uh, and that's something specifically that our team um, right, this team that B and I are on um, has been looking at for the past several months of how we're going to do air refueling logistics uh, in a contested environment. Um, so what's a what's another kind of program or, you know, obviously we talked about that that ACE uh, problem set, but what are some other problems that people are tackling with, you know, not only inside RAND in the organization, but just kind of keeping these organizations going? Because I think one of the challenges is we have a great 
idea. We have a great place to create awesome things, but how do we continue to create those awesome things in these locations? Vader, I'm going to come clean, man. I don't, un- I do not understand your question. Maybe I, I needed more caffeine today, <laughs> more, uh, more in general, like how are you, uh, what's the future look like at a, at a Gordian knot or at a Rand for these IDEs? Oh, like, okay. Are okay. these going to continue? Like, are these going to continue happening and we're going to be able to, you know, get fruits from these things for long-term? Okay. Uh, no, I, and again, to be clear, I'm pretty sure that was on my, uh, my fault for not understanding here. So well, uh, well-worded question. Um, so for Rand, I'll, I'll start there. Rand has a long history of hosting military fellows. I think it, as far back as the 1950s, uh, military officers have been embedded uh, for different durations of time at RAND participating in research projects. For the last, I'll say, I think at least 20 years, it's been predominantly your SDE, so your senior developmental education, so like your 05s and maybe some 06, young 06s. Uh, and poor pitiful them, they have to go out to Santa Monica, California, and live out there. Oh. I know. Oh, it's so terrible. So terrible. Tough life. Uh, so again, Rand has a history of hosting military, specifically Air Force officers, um, SDE specifically. But this year in particular, uh, for this year or this uh, batch of fellows, they just opened it up for IDE fellows. Uh, so again, for your 04. So I'm the first kind of batch of 04 IDE fellows here at Rand. Um, and it's here specifically in the National Capital Region with the intent of and we kind of talked about it earlier, like I'll, I'll go back and work on the Arctic matters. Everybody's going to have some form of utilization afterwards. That's at least the intent. Um, and Rand is a great place, great place to do that because, again, there's just there's so much work going on. It's really, I mean, it's choose your own adventure like five times over uh, because there's so many adventures to be had uh, in terms of uh, researching and analysis. So, uh, yes, I suspect uh, military officers have been at Rand uh, almost since the beginning of Rand's creation, and I suspect that they will be for a long time. Nice, Showtime. What about at uh, Gordian Knot Center? What do you? How do you? How do they keep bringing people in, and how do they, you know, kind of get more out of what you're seeing today? Yeah, for sure. So I think what I was just thinking about is that these fellowships, right? They're great to get us out into uh, a different ecosystem. Um, right to kind of develop us as a mid-career professional but I think the greatest benefit is that right not anything we're creating here but it's like what we are learning to take back to the rest of the Air Force right so hopefully I can like take everything I've done here you know for this year and try to try to share that in different ways throughout um, my interactions you know as I get back into the Air Force like instead of like us bringing back a widget or completing one thing here hopefully that will be like um, a greater output um, throughout the next several years in the Air Force. Would you say, uh, I mean, obviously you can't tell the future, but having this experience, would you say it, it helps you prepare for a uh, long-term Air Force career, you know, when you're a squadron commander and then beyond, or even life after the military, just to transition out? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I think it's been beneficial for me on multiple fronts. One of those being uh, just my you know, like developing my own like personal attributes of how to like people interact uh, in their professional relationship here in the commercial world, you know, civilian world, if you will, as opposed to in the military. I think that's beneficial. Uh, but then also like the thought process processes that go behind how people make decisions or how you even consider information as you're going to develop a decision. Uh, I think those will be highly beneficial to take back. Nice. So what, uh, before, before I let you guys go, what I missed, what topics did we, uh, did we not cover before uh, you guys get out of here? Sure. Uh, I would say, I think the one, uh, quick thing, right. As I was talking about the fellowship and taking back, uh, this experience to the air force, if we're trying to get at like specific solutions, uh, this project we're on, uh, is through the chief of staff of the innovation leadership cinema, cinema, seminar or to heart uh right so uh we've got a there's a cohort of 12 people divided up onto a few teams here uh and their goal right it's a collaboration between the university of michigan and air force futures uh that has given us this you know the specific amount of uh innovation training right professional innovator training 
uh, and letting us take that and apply it to one of the Air Force's, um, you know, a problem that we see in the Air Force to try to make it better. And so that's where our team has come together uh, and we're tackling this air refueling logistics in a contested environment uh, and trying to, you know, find the root cause uh, and create solutions to make it better. Nice. The uh, B, what do you got? Yeah, so certainly, I mean, I'm, I'm all about talking uh, innovation. Uh, I mean, it's, it's been such a uh, topic of conversation. I really think across the Air Force, uh, it's at least my personal set perception uh, that airmen, right, and obviously I'm talking the entire rank structure, but I'll go all the way down. I think airmen, even at the lowest levels, right, they see themselves as part of an innovative force, right? And all of our levels of professional military education, whether it's enlisted or officers, right, we talk about innovation. We talk about our innovative history. And while, you know, not all of us sit around and think about like our Air Force heroes, right? We, most of us, I think, know the stories, right? We know the stories of Billy Mitchell, right? We know if you've read Gladwell's recent book about bomber mafia, right, you know about the, the guys that were pretty much left to their own devices in central Alabama to just think about air power. And they came up with concepts that bore, you know, played out in World War II, right? And we know about Olds. Not only does Olds give us a, a reason to rock mustaches in March, which, by the way, Showtime had an awesome mustache. Um, right, that. right. But we, but we know about uh, the innovation that he did with his uh, operating concepts, him and his team uh, during the Vietnam War. And so we have airmen know about these innovative heroes within our service, but then I think when they look at themselves uh, and more so the service that we're in today uh, and they hear senior leaders calling for innovation, that resonates very strongly with them. They want to innovate. Um, that said, again, this is just my, my personal perception. Um, although there is a strong desire to innovate, there's also some frustration and some angst out there. Uh, you know, airmen want to innovate, they know we need to innovate, right? Especially when we start talking about great, great power competition. They, they get that, right? You don't have to sell them anymore. They get it. Uh, but how, what, what are we talking about when we say innovation? Like, what is that? And, and how do I do it? And then why is it that every time I try, it doesn't go anywhere? And so I think that those kind of three main things are frustrating folks. Um, and so when this opportunity came to join, to join a team, with Showtime and, and again, 10 other uh, current military fellows, I, I jumped at it uh, because, again, we're all trying to answer the chief's call to innovate, right? We know that we need to innovate in great power competition. And whatever we can do as airmen to help in that effort, uh, by God, I'm there. And I know Showtime's there as well. So the project and Showtime, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more. I mean, we could talk for days on this, um, but, but th for the ability – and, you know, we're talking about something small when we talk about low priority aerial, fuel, aerial refueling command and control. Uh, and it, it may seem like such an, a niche thing. And, Vader, you're probably sitting there thinking, like, what does a munitions guy know about low priority AR? I'll, let me tell you, in January, nothing. In January, nothing, <laughs> right? But, but we were committed, right? We were committed to, hey, this is our shot to get some formal training and to actually come up with an innovative solution. And we held ourselves accountable because we're a good team. Um, and I think what, what we've come up with is pretty powerful. Uh, and I, I think, I think it has staying power and that's what we're doing. That's what, you know, our task for the next couple of weeks is how to find out, uh, and get, and get this idea, uh, to stick around. Yeah. Well, and I think you're exactly right. You had a lot of great points there because we want people to innovate and we want to create those changes and, and exactly why we know the stories from world war two and other wars prior are because they were actually empowered to innovate and took those innovative ideas into action and actually made something of it. Uh, and I, I think we can, we can do a terrible mis, uh, disservice of our people by inspiring them to innovate and then not allowing them to get their stuff across the line and actually utilize it. So this stuff, I mean, the innovation space is obviously something I, th I think is super important. And people like yourselves working on these tough problem sets and being given the opportunity to not just work a full-time job and have everything already planned out with no white space in your schedule, you don't have any time to think of these other things or, or do anything other than our primary task. So I think it's great that you have those opportunities and that you're coming up with ideas that change the game. Because honestly, it's, it is a question of, you know, 
what do we need to do and how are we going to do it? And the more we spend time thinking on the best ways to do that, it's only going to make us better at the end of the day if we have to actually implement these things. So maybe we'll get some, uh, some of you guys or somebody else from the uh, cohort to come on and uh, chat with us some more in the future. So I, uh, I appreciate you guys being out here and uh, joining me on the podcast. Uh, if you want, if uh, people want to reach out, is there anywhere they can reach you at or uh, any kind of general location? What, what do you got? Yes. Yeah. For me, I'd say if you can hop on Google, uh, look at Gordian Knot Center, uh, Stanford, and uh, there's some contact info there. Yes. Yeah. And certainly I'm on the global number 11, Michael Hampton. Find me, reach out, please. Love to talk. Sweet. And uh, everybody, if you want to provide us feedback, good or bad on the podcast, info at KodiakShack.com and then uh, the website, KodiakShack.com. Uh, like, share, subscribe, do all that stuff. Remember on YouTube and uh, Instagram, if you're not already following us. And uh, donations, as always, are always open uh, in the uh, show notes. Hey, thank you guys for being here. See ya. Thanks, Peter. Right, thanks, Peter. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.